So I mentioned that Corey has a blog called pastorwithapurse.com, and I want to read you a couple of things from her blog that I found this morning that might kind of um, let you know where she's coming from. I live and work three miles from Stanford University. I may have passed Emily in Trader Joe's. This is Emily, who was raped, I think. I may have steered my car around Brock Turner as he cycled to class on campus. These young people are my neighbors. Palo Alto is the community where I minister. The best advice I can give you is to gather up all of the emotions you feel churning inside you as a result of this incident, and this was from a a June 9th post by her, and turn those emotions into fuel. Let the ferocity of your anger and the raised hackles of injustice motivate you to live a transformed life. All of us will have opportunities to care for someone who has been abused in one way or another. Another interesting thing, Allison, you may uh, be curious about, that in 2009, after months of classes, interviews, paperwork, and home inspections, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania licensed Corey as a therapeutic foster parent. She started the process by feeling curious and a bit afraid of where it might lead. By the time Corey was licensed, her curiosity had morphed into a profound sense of her calling. So, interesting coincidence there. Simon, Corey, you might want to share with us a little bit about what Jim asked you to, to, inter, to kind of introduce yourself a little bit, but the floor is yours. Well, good morning. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be with you. Um, I am a covenant pastor on loan to a non-covenant church, so it's really delightful for me to come and be with my covenant family I'm one of the few covenant pastors in the Bay Area that isn't a solo pastor. And so I have the ability to kind of travel around and fill in for my covenant colleagues. So I'm just kind of making the rounds through the Bay Area. So I'm happy to be here with you this morning. And I saw in your bulletin that the Norlanders are celebrating their anniversary this week. So happy anniversary. Um, I went to college with their youngest daughter, Lisa. So, uh, and... You, I think, perhaps know of her at least, if not know her personally. So we went on Europe semester together. We graduated the same year. So it's fun to make those personal connections along the way. One of the things that I do with the Covenant Church is I am um, a regional coordinator for a association called Advocacy for Victims of Abuse, or we call it AVA. So I have been trained to educate mainly faith communities about abuse. Um, And so all the stuff in the media that's been happening recently about the Stanford rape case, um, I had some things to say, especially to people who are feeling really strong emotions about that. So you're always welcome to check out my blog. I'm not a full-time blogger, so. Um, But you're welcome to kind of troll through there and see if you find anything interesting. Um, But I am available to any of you who um, have struggled with abuse in the past um, and may want a female minister to speak with, I'd be happy to meet with you, and you can always reach out to me through Hans Eric. Um, well, I was uh, growing up in the 80s, and it, computers were just starting to get into schools, but they were the archaic kind, of huge boxes, and it was just a black screen with green characters, right? But um, they wanted kids especially to learn the keyboard quickly because they knew that it would be the way of the future. 
So I was in a school that had some of those early computers, um, and they had this game on a floppy disk called the Oregon Trail. And I don't, yes, some of you remember the Oregon Trail. It's a fantastic game um, where it really is just trying to help you identify where things are on the keyboard. That's the sole purpose of the game. But you know, they trick you into thinking it's educational, or not, it's not educational, it's just fun. So the, the basis of the Oregon Trail is you are a frontiers person, and you have to get yourself, your family, a, a team of animals, and a wagon full of supplies across the American frontier, across wide rivers, through shadeless prairies, and over the Rocky Mountains. Now, despite my strategic planning in the general store at the beginning of the game where you stock up on supplies, I think I survived the trip west twice. I never seemed to have the right combination or amount of supplies to deal with whatever catastrophe I faced along the way. Well, in the mid-1800s, over um, half a million people attempted to cross the American frontier, and 50,000 of them died along the way. Uh, it was a difficult and dangerous journey. People drowned crossing rivers, they were trampled by wagons and animals, and some were killed by lightning and apple-sized hail. But the most common causes of death on the American frontier were cholera, wound infections, and accidental gunshots. But no matter how prepared the pioneers were when they began their journey, they knew that their lives would be at risk. But they chose to make the journey anyway because they had a desire for land and opportunity, and that gave them the courage they needed to push west despite the danger. Well, you are people of the book. You know the Bible. You know that there are many stories in the Bible of these epic journeys across land. Abraham and his family journeyed thousands of miles across a strange desert, and as they traveled, they were under threat by hostile natives and foreign kings. And then Moses and the Israelites spent 40 years in a desert with little natural resources of food and water. And then even once the people were settled in the promised land, living there and traveling within God's promised land was risky as well. We all recall that famous story called the Good Samaritan from Luke 10, where a man is found in the road beaten and left for dead. And that was just on a 15-mile walk from Jerusalem to Jericho. Once they were settled into the Promised Land, the Jews were required by God to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for certain religious festivals. There's a group of Psalms, beginning with Psalm 120, called the Psalms of Ascent. And these are songs and poems that tell the story of the Jewish pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they're called Ascent because Jerusalem was their holy city. So they always talked about going up to Jerusalem. So Psalm 121 is probably familiar to many of you. It's the most famous of those Psalms of Ascent. And there's a lot of language in it that's really famous. A lot of people, even non-Bible people, know some of the words in this Psalm. But it's our text for today. And though it may be familiar to many of you, I want to encourage you to try to hear it again for the first time. I think that you might be surprised by some encouragement in this psalm that you may have missed in the past. So I'd like to encourage you to pull out your pew Bible or call up your Bible on your phone, whichever you prefer, um, because I, I like to preach through a text, and so it'll be helpful for you to reference back as I go. 
Um, I am going to read the psalm from the New Revised Standard Version this morning. I know you have the NIV in your pews. Um, And I'm choosing the NRSV because that translation preserves some key language in the Hebrew um, that I think will help us in our understanding of what's happening in this scene. So hear these words from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where will my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Amen. So if you were reading along in the NIV, you probably saw a couple of words that were different, and we'll talk about those as we go along. The scene is set. A Jewish pilgrim is about to travel to Jerusalem. Two things stand out immediately in this psalm. First, there are many dangers along the road to Jerusalem. And second, the pilgrim has complete confidence that God will get him there safely. Danger and confidence. Those are the two things that we're going to focus on this morning. So let's begin by just cataloging what what the dangers are and what the confidence is. The pilgrim begins the list of dangers right away in this psalm. The phrase, I lift up my eyes to the hills, is one of those very famous phrases that a lot of people know. And it's usually interpreted as this immediate warm feeling of comfort. But... If you understand the geography of Israel and you know a little bit about Old Testament history, you realize that actually when the author says, I lift up my eyes to the hills, this is actually the first of many red flags. You see, Jerusalem is in the center of a geographical region called the hill country. Maybe some of you have been to Israel. I spent a summer semester there. Um, And being there actually changed how I would interpret this psalm. So the hill country is an area of very steep hills and deep valleys all packed together. So if you were to look at it from the air, like in an airplane, it would look like the back of a hundred camels all tightly bound together. So the topography of this region makes it the perfect hunting ground for thieves. There's lots of places to hide and many ways to escape with your loot. Remember uh, the Good Samaritan. He was on the way from Jerusalem, but going through the hill country. And also, if you remember, in the Old Testament, you might uh, be familiar with the language of high places. The Bible speaks against these things called high places. And this often um, was the hilltops. And the hilltops were where pagan peoples would make sacrifices to their gods. On the altars, on these high places, they made sacrifices to gods like Baal. And this is also where sometimes they would sacrifice children to these gods or have sexual orgies. Now, these were both perverted attempts to appease fertility gods and ensure the blessings of a good crop. So, no Jewish pilgrim could get to Jerusalem without going through the hill country, this place of pagan worship, this dangerous place where you might run into thieves. And if that wasn't bad enough, 
the list of threats continues. If you look at verse 3, it says, He will not let your foot be moved. This can also be translated shake or slip. You might see that in your translation. Now, obviously, when your destination is at least a day's walk away and you're going through a hilly country, there's the possibility that you might, get, you might fall and get hurt. If it were me, I would be tempted to stay at home. Um, I am not coordinated. My mother used to like to joke that I can't walk and chew ice at the same time. Um, and you're allowed to laugh at that. I have a good sense of humor, even about myself. Um, so like I told you, I spent a summer semester in Israel. And um, I was in Jerusalem, and I was jogging up these ancient limestone stairs at some site in Jerusalem. And ancient stairs aren't evenly measured out. They're not evenly spaced. And I was jogging up, not really paying attention. I misjudged the depth of one of them, or the height of one. And I tripped. And I took a nosedive. Well, thankfully for my nose, my knee hit first. Unfortunately for my knee, I really messed it up. Landed on this limestone stair. And if you know anything about limestone, there is no give. So my knee connected right with the edge of the stair. Some of the worst pain I had ever felt. When I was able to stand back up and get my breath back from the pain, I continued going up the stairs because I had to get up to something. And my knee gave out, and I fell and landed on the same knee on the edge of another stair. Well, one knee surgery and six months of physical therapy later taught me that even a simple walk up the stairs can be treacherous. So uh, the pilgrim of Psalm 121 just simply here acknowledges that accidents can happen when you're on a journey. Verse 6 lists the last two dangers in Psalm 121, the sun and the moon. Well, as I told the kids, I lived in the desert. I lived in Phoenix, Arizona for four years before moving. Well, then I moved to Hawaii, and then I moved here. Um, But like the Arizona desert, uh, the promised land lacks a lot of shade trees. And so every summer that I lived in Phoenix, I would just shake my head as I would hear the news reports every week that another tourist had to be rescued off of one of our hiking trails. Now, if you've lived in Phoenix or visited, no person who lives in Arizona hikes in the summer. It is very dangerous. We take the sun very seriously because we desert people know that the sun can be deadly if you underestimate its power. So you're at risk to heat stroke. Um, and we even have tourists die, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, underestimate the power of the sun. But the people in biblical times were very, very aware that the sun was very powerful and they needed to be careful as they journeyed. But strangely enough, the moon was also a threat back then. They had this belief um, that the moon had harmful influences. So folklore said that the moon god um, caused disasters. And the uh, so-called medical experts of the day believed that the moon was responsible for fever and leprosy. So here's the list of dangers as the people back then would have known them. Thieves, pagan worship, accidents, exhaustion, heat stroke, disasters, fever, and leprosy. And there may have been more that we don't know. So who is ready to sign up for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem? It makes so much sense then, knowing the dangers, that the psalmist starts with this question, from where will my help come? So we've cataloged the dangers. Now let's hone in and feast on the good part. Let's focus on the pilgrim's confidence, which is strung throughout the psalm. 
the pilgrim gives a quick response to his own question. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And as we look carefully throughout this psalm, we'll see that God's presence and character are the source of the pilgrim's confidence. The pilgrim declares the Lord as his help. There are 21 occurrences of this noun help in the Old Testament, and almost every single one of them speaks of the matchless loving help of God who comes to the aid of his people. To be our help. That is part of God's character, and it's the reason why the pilgrim is so confident in his God. Now, as you know, the Psalms aren't just songs. They are also poetry. And the biblical poets use literary devices to pack a lot of meaning into, meaning into these tight phrases. For example, the phrase heaven and earth just to us sounds like, well, heaven and earth. But this is actually a literary device in ancient poetry called a merism. And that's where the author uses opposites or extremes. And by using that, means to imply everything that occurs between those extremes. So when the pilgrim calls God the maker of heaven and earth, those who were hearing this poetry back then would have known that they were implying every single thing that happens between the sky and the ground. So should a pilgrim be fearful of fertility gods, pagan fertility gods, when he or she belongs to the creator of everything that I can see? Should the pilgrim who worships this creator cancel a trip out of fear of threat or robbery or physical harm? The writer of Psalm 121 doesn't think so. Instead of feeling helpless, he has confidence in his helper. Instead of feeling uh, fearful, he moves forward. Listen to the words of his reassurance in verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Notice here that the voice has changed. It has gone from first person to third person. It's as though the pilgrim has turned to his neighbor. And his confidence for the journey is his neighbor's assurance that her feet will not slip on her pilgrimage. The pilgrim's confidence rests in the identity and character of the Lord, the creator, his helper. In verse 3, he adds a new dimension to his understanding of God when he calls God, he who keeps you. I love that. He who keeps you. In verse 5, the pilgrim declares, the Lord is your keeper. And this is the holy eardrum-popping crescendo of the whole song. Everything in this poem builds to the image of God as keeper. And that's why I like the NRSV translation, because it keeps the keeper. (laughs) The six occurrences of keep and keeper in this psalm are from the same root, meaning keep, guard, or watch. These verses reveal God as an alert helper who will not doze off or sleep when his pilgrims are on the road. Now, most translations like to vary up the Hebrew into English and choose different words for different phrases. But in Hebrew, this is just one root and one idea repeated over and over. The NIV, which you have in your pews, uses a language of watch. But my concern here is the way that we use the language of watch in our modern context. Think about it. I'm going to go home and watch some basketball. Or I love to watch NCIS. 
And then when we watch these things, many of us are really not paying that much attention. We could be on our phones or on our computers or having a conversation or distracted by children. And so when we watch something, we may not actually be very attentive or even very interested in what we're watching. And I think it's just too passive, that word in English, too passive for what is meant in Psalm 121. When it says God is your keeper, picture someone who watches over a beloved child. When a good babysitter or parents or grandparents watch a child, they are not passive. They are always within reach, following the child's steps, ready to protect them from harm and keep them from mischief. Hopefully, we do our best. The Pilgrim of Psalm 121 is trying to convey that type of keeping. This is how he sees and knows the Lord like a loving parent who diligently watches over their child, or like a good shepherd who goes after a single lost sheep. And if that is not enough to reassure the concerned travelers, the pilgrim uses God's personal name five times in this psalm. There's only eight verses, so it would have resounded in their minds hearing the Lord's name over and over. And this is also something that often gets lost in translation. I don't know about you. I don't know what your background is in the Bible. So some of you may be less familiar with the history of Scripture. And so if you are, just know that anytime you see the word Lord in all capital letters in the Bible, that is a substitution for the personal name Yahweh, which is what it is in Hebrew. God didn't just share his personal name with people so they knew what to call him. He shared his name as a sign of intimacy, of the type of relationship this God, this creator, this helper was offering to the people. It's letting them know who he is, revealing his character and his power. And Yahweh, by his very nature, is a present and active God, especially active in the lives of his people. Yahweh is with and for his people. That meaning is implied in his name, I am. Though he is creator, he is also personal. Though personal, he is also holy and all-powerful, which is why revering God's name is the third commandment. The early Jews took that commandment so very seriously. They believed that it was so holy that they could only truly keep it holy if they never spoke God's name. And so, eventually, over time, God's people began to replace what we see in the text as God's personal name with this Lord, the, subs, uh, the capitalized Lord. And so the NRSV uh, translation preserves the poet's repetition of keep and Yahweh. And this isn't useless redundancy. It's not bad poetry. The point is that the poet is trying to use the repetition to set up markers of God's faithfulness. And so as you read down the psalm, every corner you turn, there is a reminder that God keeps you. It says, he who keeps you, he who keeps Israel, Yahweh is your keeper, Yahweh will keep you. And that repetition shows you how constant God's love is for his people. That's how intimately he cares for them when they are obedient. And with these words, with this short eight-verse psalm, the pilgrim is saying, don't fear the dangers of the pilgrimage, because God has got this. Shouldn't that encourage us? 
And if that wasn't enough, the pilgrim poet goes on to say that Yahweh is your shade at your right hand. And it reminds me of this. Yahweh is your shade. And I think that the early Jews would have recalled this. This palm tree is such a symbolic reminder to them of their history in the desert, how God delivered them from slavery, and even in the desert when they didn't have resources. God was their shade. God kept them through 40 years in a desert where there was little water and food. God provided for his people. God is your shade. So the last two verses in Psalm 121 are like the finale of a song, expanding from four to eight-part harmony. And I am a musician, and so in my mind I read the song, and I can hear it building, and I can hear it billowing and crescendoing. Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. Yahweh will keep your going out and your coming in from this time on and forevermore. Do you see what the poet has done here with these last two verses? He has left no wiggle room in God's ability to keep his pilgrims. With his strongest voice, the pilgrim says that there is no form of evil, no threat or danger that will be able to snatch the pilgrims from Yahweh's hand. There is never a time when Yahweh will not keep his people. Because he knows who Yahweh is, the pilgrim is so completely, solidly confident, and he is ready to travel through the dangerous hill country to obey God's command to worship him in Jerusalem. Well, thousands of years have passed since these psalms were written and sung corporately, and I hope we've reconnected with some of that ancient meaning that they would have known as they sung it together. Few of us have made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and none of us probably by foot. Maybe there's one person who did a a walking pilgrimage. Um, And because Jesus came and fulfilled the law, we aren't required to travel to Jerusalem three times a year to worship, which we should be thankful for as Americans. It would cost a pretty penny to get over there three times a year. But despite the things that may make it feel and seem distant, this psalm is still for us. It's for each one of you in the pews this morning. I am sure that you have heard Christians call this faith thing a journey, their spiritual journey. You may have used that language yourself. It's a metaphor that we use to help us make sense of the Christian life. The Bible is full of language and imagery of pilgrimage and journey. You might remember that before the term Christians was used, those who followed Jesus in the early church were known as the people of the way. I think that's so beautiful. The people of the way. Now our pilgrimage is the way of Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And ours is a daily pilgrimage. Our path is to follow Jesus in our everyday lives, taking steps of obedience to where God calls us, trusting him to guide us through the complexities and dangers of this life along the way as we're led by God's spirit. We are pilgrims on a daily journey in God's presence. Like our spiritual ancestors, our way has many dangers and threats. It would be foolish of me to stand up here and tell you or for you to believe 
that the Christian life is always safe and sweet. Our pilgrimage in life is a dangerous and risky one. We lose our jobs. We are in car accidents. We deal with chronic pain. We are sued. We are diagnosed with diseases. We suffer depression and doubt and fear. We are tempted by addiction and lust and materialism. We face risks and vulnerabilities around every corner, every day of our lives. But all of that, measured together, is like dust compared to the fact that Yahweh is our keeper. If we can't reconcile the dangers we face in our Christian lives with the true, and good, true goodness of God in his keeping of us, then it may be that we've bought into a simplistic view of blessing. I think many Christians these days believe that being blessed by God means that you have stuff or you achieve stuff, like health or wealth or, or um, status, things like getting an advanced degree, a steady job with good benefits, having a loving marriage, Um, having healthy, obedient, and high-achieving children, owning a home. As a pastor here, I will never be able to own a home unless the market totally tanks. Um, Having deep, abiding friendships. Don't we have these things and sometimes say in reflection, God has blessed me. Now, some of these things may be the ways in which God has actively blessed you. But I know so many Christians who have this whole list of stuff and inside still feel like something is lacking. The truth is that you can have none of these things that I've listed as blessing, um, but still be blessed. And that's because being blessed actually has nothing to do with outward achievement or even inward feelings of satisfaction with our lives. Fundamentally, when we drill down to the core of the idea of blessing, it is about living in the presence of God. Bottom line, blessing is about living in the presence of God. So if you have committed your life to Jesus, you are blessed. And you are blessed because God is with you now and forever. Whatever your struggles The person who wrote Psalm 121 wants you to know, to be encouraged, and to have confidence in our God who keeps us. Yahweh is our keeper. Now, I know that this is much easier said than lived. It belongs in that mysterious and challenging category called faith. I would not stand up here and preach this message of confidence in the Lord to you if I have never withstood a trial myself. I would just be totally phony if I were to do that. So I want to share with you a bit of my pilgrimage. I've kind of alluded to this before. When I moved to Arizona, it was back in 2010. I had been uh, living among and working with college students in campus ministry for six years. Um, And I really, that last year of working with college students, felt the Lord stirring me um, and really having a greater and growing desire to teach um, and to teach more directly from Scripture um, and to to minister to people of all ages, not just developing adults. 
And so I was in conversation with my mentors, with my pastor, and with some close friends. And we all felt through prayer that the Lord was confirming this uh, changed call in my life to move more into congregational ministry. And so out of obedience to that call, I resigned from my position in Pennsylvania and moved to Arizona, thinking I was just going to camp out there for a few months, hang out with some family, and apply for and get a job. Well, over the next four years, I applied to over 250 pastoral positions. In those four years, I had 11 interviews, and I had zero offers. Though I had a solid resume an advanced degree, years of vital experience, God's gift and call in my life, and I was following that out of obedience, I had zero, zero jobs prospects. I spent 19 months of those four years unemployed. Imagine the tension of having a clear call from God and being obedient to that call only to experience years of waiting and uncertainty and instability. For me, it was an excruciating pilgrimage through a spiritual desert. I know, I really do know, how difficult following God and being obedient to his call can be. I walked a dangerous hill country for years. But I can stand up here in front of you now and teach this with authenticity because along that journey, I encountered one truth, and it's that Yahweh is my keeper. In the darkest days along my journey, my prayer was that God would console me. I didn't need God to be like Santa Claus, stuffing my life with shiny things that I wanted but didn't need. And I also did not need a God that was like a magic wand-toting Disney fairy godmother who would instantly change my life from rags and poverty into a beautiful royal ball. I live in the real world, right? This is not a fairy tale. It is messy and smelly and scary and full of sinners and death and evil. I do not expect this life to be easy. But there's some part of me, deep inside, that I discovered that I never expected following God to be this difficult either. And when I was broken and weary, I encountered that truth, that Yahweh is my keeper. And seeing God on the move in my life, in my desolation, was like drinking Lake Tahoe when it was at its fullest. God never tired of showing me his love. He didn't instantly get me out of my trial, like he didn't instantly take the Israelites out of the desert. But God met me, and God supplied what I truly needed. God sent friends as prophets into my life at just the right time, just when I was ready to give up and walk away from my calling and find another career. Someone would come up to me, put their hands on my shoulders, or grab my hand and say, You are on the right path. Don't give up. God did that. He knew exactly when I was going to walk away. And so Yahweh is my keeper. And I have learned that he will keep me at all times and in every way. And I have learned to endure and persevere. Yahweh is your keeper. He will keep your life. The question is, do you believe that? Do you believe that he will keep you? 
Psalm 121 teaches us that the real threat to our spiritual pilgrimage is not the danger along the way or God's ability or resolve to protect us. God's very nature is love and faithfulness. He will keep us forever. The biggest threat to a successful spiritual pilgrimage is whether or not we will trust him. I have grieved over many friends who have abandoned their faith because life got really difficult. I was on the cusp of that myself as a pastor. But even when we feel that God has abandoned us, he is there keeping us, holding us, providing for us, even in ways that we cannot see and we may not understand until we look, look back. When life gets too confusing and difficult, my covenant friends, that is when we need to stay on the path and cling to Jesus. Borrow the faith of believers around you like the psalmist offered his faith to his fellow pilgrim. Borrow my faith. Believe that God will keep you. Seek wise counsel of those in your life. Ask them, how, how do I get through this? How do I survive this? How do I remain obedient? And pray along the way that God will revive you by the breath of his Holy Spirit. Ask that he would be light in your darkest moments and gift you with faith to be people of the way. Most of all, make your pilgrimage knowing that Yahweh is with and for you. He is your keeper. Trust in God knowing that no matter the circumstances, you are blessed because you live in God's presence as one of his dearly loved children. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him.